Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. This morning we'll be reading together the entirety of this chapter. So Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, about Jonah the prophet and his uh, rebellion from the Lord's call uh, upon his life to go to the people of Nineveh. So Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in a, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I? Well, this is the word of short narrative. Ever since Jonah's rebellion at the beginning of chapter 1, this book seems to have been going in a a positive direction. The Lord pursues Jonah. Jonah ends up responding to God's call and going to this ancient wicked city of Nineveh. He preaches God's message. Nineveh repents and God relents. And then we come to chapter 4, which seems to be somewhat of a downer. In fact, this book is the only book, apart from Nahum, that ends in a question. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, you should see a heading above chapter 4 that says, Jonah's anger and the Lord's compassion. This is a a pretty good summary of what we read about here in chapter 4. Jonah's anger and the Lord's compassion. However, it would be better if we switched these two phrases. The Lord's compassion and Jonah's anger. 
this chapter is really about the Lord. It's about the Lord's compassion and grace. As one commentator says, the question that should be in our mind as we read this chapter is, what is the Lord like? And we see in this chapter a Lord who is filled with compassion and grace towards his people. However, Jonah is still very much on the stage in this concluding chapter of this short narrative. And we see in Jonah much sin, much rebellion, much anger, and much pride. In fact, this chapter in many ways serves as the crescendo of God's compassion and Jonah's sin. Two themes that we've been considering throughout this short book. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is to briefly consider God's character and specifically his compassion and grace. And I'd like us to consider Jonah's character, his anger and pride. And then in conclusion, I'd like us to consider what unites these two themes and ideas, these themes of God's character and Jonah's character. So first of all, who is God? Who is God and what is he like? As I mentioned before, these are the questions that should be percolating in our minds and hearts as we approach this chapter. Who is God and what is he like? Well, in this chapter, God is presented as a God of grace and compassion. And we witness this God of grace and compassion in a variety of ways in these 11 verses. First of all, we see that Jonah, Jonah confesses, albeit with, with clenched teeth, he confesses God to be a God of compassion, God to be a God of grace. So you'll see in verse 1 that this chapter begins with Jonah being exceedingly displeased and angry. Why? Well, recall what happened at the end of chapter 3. Nineveh repented and God relented. And this made Jonah exceedingly displeased. And so what does Jonah do? Well, he prays. This much is good. He prays. And he says, God, isn't this what I told you when I was still in my homeland? Isn't this why I sought to flee to Tarshish in the first place? I know who you are, God. I know that you are merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger and constantly relenting from disaster. Now, Jonah, Jonah loves when God's grace and mercy is poured out upon himself or even upon his own people, the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, notice what Jonah says in verse 6. It's great irony between verse 1 and verse 6. Verse 6, God appoints this plant to, to grow up and, and serve as a shade for Jonah as he's sitting in the desert sun. And what's Jonah's response? He's exceedingly glad for this gracious provision of God. But when God's grace and mercy and provision is poured out upon his enemies, that's when Jonah grows exceedingly displeased and angry. That's when Jonah becomes dismayed and disturbed. So much so that he would rather die than see his enemies experience the grace and mercy of Yahweh. And so Jonah, Jonah confesses, albeit through clenched teeth, he confesses that God is a gracious God, a compassionate God, a merciful God. 
Now, Jonah not only confesses God to be a God of grace and compassion, but Jonah also experiences the grace of God, the compassion of God. Jonah experiences the grace and compassion of God. In many ways, this book, this book of Jonah is really a book about our sovereign father's gracious discipline of those whom he loves. This book is a book about our sovereign father's gracious discipline of those whom he loves. Again, what does God do after Jonah rebels, rebels from that initial call in the first few verses of this book? Yahweh relentlessly pursues Jonah. He sends or hurls a storm upon Jonah. He raises up these sailors to throw Jonah overboard. He appoints a fish to swallow Jonah as a means of deliverance. He also commands this fish through his powerful word to vomit Jonah out onto dry ground. We then see in in chapter 4 that God appoints a plant, a worm, a scorching east wind. God does all of these things to bring Jonah to a place of repentance. God uses all of these things to foster a spirit of humility in Jonah. God uses all of these things to foster a spirit of dependence in Jonah. Jonah experienced the grace of God. The compassion of God. Jonah experienced what we confess in Heidelberg Catechism 27, that all things come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. Jonah experienced God's gracious providence. When Jonah sought to flee from the presence of God, God didn't give up on Jonah. He pursued Jonah. The Lord calls those who are his and those who are his will never be plucked from his hand, nor will they be able to voluntarily leave his hand. This is what Jonah experienced in this book. Jonah experienced the grace and compassion of his covenant God and Lord, Yahweh himself. Well, Jonah in this book, in many ways, represents the nation of Israel. In fact, when the original audience, Israel, heard this book read to them, they were meant to be challenged through the character of Jonah. And so insofar as Jonah represents Israel, we also see that Israel experienced the grace and compassion of God. Now in verse 2, Jonah is quoting from Exodus 34 verse 6, which functions something like a creedal statement or formula for the nation of Israel. And Exodus 34 comes on the heels of the golden calf incident in in the book of Exodus. And what is this incident? Well, this incident is is essentially when Israel cheated on God on the wedding night of the Mosaic Covenant. And yet, what did God do? Did he blot Israel out from the face of the earth? No, he was long-suffering and merciful and gracious to them. Indeed, God was long-suffering and gracious to Israel throughout their history, Because of the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Indeed, in 2 Kings 14, which is the passage in which we learn about the prophet Jonah's ministry under King Jeroboam II to the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Even in that chapter, we learn that God was patient and long-suffering with the idolatrous and unfaithful northern kingdom. And so God was compassionate and gracious, not, not just to Jonah, but to Israel themselves. Well, Jonah not only confesses and experiences God's grace, we also see in this chapter God himself confessing to be a God of grace and compassion. So if you skip down with me to the end of this chapter, uh, we see that as Jonah is lamenting the destruction, demise, and the, the withering up of this plant which God had appointed to give shade to Jonah from the scorching desert sun, God uh, comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, you care about this plant. You pity this plant. A plant that you did not put in the ground. A plant that you did not care for. A plant that was here yesterday and today is withered up and gone. You pity a plant, Jonah. Should I not pity Nineveh? A great city filled with human beings made in my image. Should I not pity Nineveh? A city of 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. That is to say, who are spiritually blind and dead in their sin? Should I not pity a city that's filled with much cattle? God here is giving us a glimpse into the multidimensional nature of his grace. God here points our attention to his saving grace. A saving grace that stays his wrath upon the condition of faith and repentance. A saving grace that does not desire the death of the wicked, but desires that all would turn to him by faith. We see here God's common grace, his preserving grace, his love for all of creation, as God even pities and cares about the cattle, the livestock of this ancient wicked city of Nineveh. So God, God himself confesses to be a God of grace, a God of compassion. And so God's character is very much highlighted in this last chapter of Jonah. Well, as I said before, God's not the only character on the stage here in Jonah chapter 4. We, we also see Jonah. Jonah's still very much on the stage here. And in this chapter, we see Jonah's anger. His anger in particular. So if you look with me again at verse 1 as we consider Jonah's character. This chapter begins by saying, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, what does the it refer to? Well, as I mentioned, it's the conclusion of chapter 3. It's Nineveh's repentance and God relenting of his disaster. Jonah's angry, exceedingly so, because God is relenting of his wrath. In fact, the author expresses Jonah's anger here in the strongest possible way. In fact, if you were to literally render verse 1, it would go something like this. It was an evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it made Jonah burn with anger. When Jonah witnessed God's grace being poured out upon Jonah, it was evil, a great evil in his sight and eyes. So much so that he would rather die than experience Nineveh being the recipient of Yahweh's compassion. Now, what is God's response? What is God's response to Jonah's anger? 
to Jonah's bad attitude, you could say. Well, in verses 4 through 11, God comes with questions. In fact, he comes with three questions in particular. In the Old Testament, oftentimes God comes in judgment and indictment through the use of questions. Think, for instance, how God came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise after they sinned. God comes and he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the spirit of the day of judgment. And he asks, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Think of how God answered Job in Job 38, out of the whirlwind. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, do you know who laid the measurements of all things? Surely you know, Job. God oftentimes uses questions in order to uh, judge and indict his people. And here in in Jonah chapter 4, God is using a similar tactic. He's coming to Jonah with questions. And the purpose of these questions is to make Jonah stop and think. To stop and think and consider his ways, specifically the error of his ways. And if we reflect upon our own personal experience, oftentimes it is more effective to ask people wise questions. Questions that will make them stop and think. Questions that will help them discern the error of their ways and come to the right conclusions. Rather than us just immediately telling them what we think they need to hear. So God here is employing the use of wise questions. Wise questions to get Jonah to think. So the first of these questions comes in verse 4. And and he says, Jonah, do you do well? Or you could say, do you have any right to be angry? Through this question, God is wanting Jonah to stop and think. Think about whether or not he is behaving like a creature should be behaving before his creator. Through this question, God is wanting Jonah to stop and consider and think whether or not he is acting or behaving like a sheep should act or behave before his shepherd. Through the use of this question, God is wanting Jonah to remember Remember the prayer that he himself prayed from the belly of the whale in Jonah chapter 2. Remember how Jonah concluded that that great psalm-like prayer? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is free to show mercy to whom he will show mercy and harden whom he will harden. Jonah has no right to criticize God for extending mercy and grace to Nineveh. Jonah has no right... To tell God whom God should show mercy to. God is wanting Jonah to stop and consider if he is acting like a creature or acting like a creator before God. Well, the second question that God asks to Jonah comes in verse 9. On the heels of verse 9, we see that God appointed this plant to give shade to Jonah as he goes out into the desert to hopefully watch the destruction of Nineveh. God then appoints a worm to destroy and eat up this plant. And then, last of all, he appoints a scorching east wind so that Jonah feels as if he's an egg in a frying pan. Of course, Jonah's angry. He's angry. He's angry with God. And so God comes to him with a second question. 
And he says, Jonah, do you do well or do you have any right to be angry over the plant? Through this question, God wants Jonah to reconsider. Reconsider his definition of grace. Notice how Jonah here really is acting as a stubborn child. A spoiled, stubborn child. Jonah looks at this plant as something that God really owes to him. God, Jonah you know, has really turned God's grace from a free, undeserved, unexpected gift to an earned paycheck. God owes it to him to, to shade his head and, and not appoint this worm to destroy his shade from the desert sun. And so God, through the use of this question, is wanting Jonah to reconsider. Reconsider what grace really is. But last of all, God's third question comes in, in verses 10 through 11, which we've already briefly touched upon. But in verses 10 through 11, God responds to, to Jonah's anger at the plant and again says, Jonah, you pity this plant. A plant! A plant which you did nothing to bring about. A plant which is fleeting. It was here yesterday, today it's gone. You pity a plant, Jonah. Should I not pity Nineveh? A city of image bearers of God? A city that is spiritually blind and destitute? A city with much cattle and livestock? God wants Jonah, through the use of this question, to see the irrationality of his logic. God's essentially saying, Jonah, do you want me to apply the same logic to you that you are employing in this moment? Do you want me to treat you the way that you want me to treat Nineveh? How would that have worked out, Jonah, if when you were fleeing from the presence of God, I left you in your sin and rebellion, rather than pursuing you relentlessly? God is wanting Jonah to see the irrationality of his actions and thought pattern. Well, what, what is Jonah's problem here? What is Jonah's problem? Well, you know, the heading says Jonah's anger. And that's true. We see Jonah's anger here. But the deeper problem here is Jonah's pride. Anger is just a symptom, a symptom of this deeper issue of pride. Jonah here is essentially asserting himself as a creature above his creator. Jonah here thinks that he and God are essentially colleagues and he has a right over whom God will show mercy to. Jonah needs to be humbled. It's only when Jonah is humbled by the grace of God that he will actually be able to love his enemies, love the people of Nineveh. It's only when he sees himself as at bottom no different than the wicked city of Nineveh that he will be able to desire their good and their salvation. So Jonah's problem here is really a problem of pride, a pride which manifests itself in anger. And so we see in chapter 4 God's character and we see Jonah's character. Now, as we move towards the conclusion, I'd like to briefly reflect upon what unites these two themes. What unites these two themes of, of God's compassion and, and Jonah's anger and pride? Well, St. Augustine has a very pithy quote. He once said that the new is the old concealed and the old is the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Meaning that in the new covenant, we see the old um, how we see the old revealed, and in the old covenant, the new is concealed. And so in chapter 4, we see the new covenant concealed. In chapter 4, we see the new covenant concealed. In these two themes of God's character and Jonah's character, we see the new covenant concealed. 
That's what unites these two themes. Now, how so? Well, again, the focus of this chapter is God's grace. God's grace going to Nineveh. God's grace going to Israel's enemy. God's grace going to a Gentile nation. This is at the heart of the new covenant. God's grace going to the nations. In fact, recall the end of Matthew 28 as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he gathers his disciples before him and he commissions his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and he commissions his disciples with the message of God's grace to be dispensed through two mediums, the word and the sacraments. And the Lord commissions these these disciples not merely to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but where? To the nations, to the end of the earth. And he concludes this passage by saying, and behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. With this promise, he's wanting to remind the disciples and the church in every age that as they do the work of the ministry, it's not ultimately their work. It's Christ's work. This is Christ's work for the sake of the nations. And so, in the context of Jonah 4, we are the nations, beloved. The gospel has come to us. The gospel has come to God's enemies. The gospel has come to Nineveh. And so on this Sunday, a Sunday in which we celebrate our particularization, our organization, what we're celebrating is this grace of God which has gone to Nineveh. This grace of God which has gone to the nations. And so we see here the heart of the new covenant concealed. Now we also see the new covenant concealed in Jonah's character. And what I mean by this is that we see the new covenant concealed in God showing Jonah through the use of these questions that he is called to love his enemies. We see the new covenant concealed in God showing Jonah that he is called to love his enemies. And of course in the Old Testament, in this chapter and elsewhere, Israel was called to love their enemies. However, In another sense, as a theocratic state, they were called to express a holy hatred towards their enemies. We see this in the conquest of the promised land in the book of Joshua. We see this in many of the imprecatory psalms of the Psalter. But in the new covenant, the church is never to hate their enemies. The church is never to curse their enemies. The church is never to wage a holy warfare against her enemies. The church is only to do what Jesus himself tells us to do at the end of Matthew chapter 5 which is to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give the cloak off our back. This is the ethic that we're called to display as members of Christ's church here in the new covenant. Thus, beloved, we would do well to consider whether we, whether we seek to love those who are on the opposite aisle of us politically or culturally, whether or not we seek to love those who disrespect us, hurt us, Whether or not we seek to love those who can offer us nothing in return. Think about those people in your life that you have no desire to see, spend time with, let alone pick up the phone and call. Do you seek to love those people? Do you seek to love your so-called enemies? Or do you just seek to love those who are easy to love? Those who can give you something in return? We are to be a people who love our enemies. And what's so wonderful about this is that God's grace is the only motivation for this kind of ethic. As one theologian very helpfully, um, as, as one theologian very helpfully puts it, when you think about the cross in light of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, 
what we've done in our sin is we've slapped God in the face. And God has every right to slap us back in his justice and wrath. We deserve that second retaliatory slap. But what does God do on the cross? He himself takes responsibility for that second retaliatory slap in Christ. He turns the other cheek so that he can dispense his mercy and grace towards his enemies, towards us. And thus we, we who were once God's enemies but have now been adopted into his family, we are called to leave justice to God. And God will punish every sin. For those who don't repent and believe, he will punish that person's sin on judgment day. For those who do repent and believe, that person's sin has been punished at Calvary. So we leave justice to God and we go forth and show the love of God. The love of God who turns the other cheek and loves as if justice has been satisfied. This is what we're called to. This is what is concealed, albeit in a negative form. This is what's concealed in Jonah chapter 4. And so, beloved in the Lord, congregation of Christ, as we celebrate today uh, being an organized church, an organized church within the URCNA, let me remind you, we do not cease to be a mission work. We still and will always be called to herald the grace of God and show forth the love of God, a love that turns the other cheek and loves one's enemies. So let us pray. Merciful Father, we give thanks for your grace. Your grace that we see not just in the new covenant, but a grace that we see in so many different ways and forms and, and angles, even in the Old Testament. And we thank you this morning as we celebrate your grace going to the nations, your grace coming here to Gig Harbor. Uh, we, we thank you, O oh Lord, that you are still in the business of growing your church. You are still in the business of, of um, expanding your 